Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Today's reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Shelby. So kids, you can go ahead and head on out. Uh, Have fun. Stay warm. I heard that the Elevate classroom is actually the warmest room in the building right now. So, you know, good for them. (laughs) So for those of you that I, I haven't met yet, my name is Joel. I am one of the elders here. And like I said last week, and I will say again this week, and probably next week again, watch out, Trey, I'm coming for your job. I'm preaching three weeks in a row. (laughs) So this morning, we're going to continue on in our series where we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, this passage that's all about Jesus. And what we're doing is, in this series, in these three weeks, we're going through and we're taking a look at who Jesus is as we're preparing to jump back into the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, we were going through it last year. We took a little break for Advent and Christmas, and we're going to jump back into it again soon. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out the ethical commands for living in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so before we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount and we look at how how Jesus lays out living the life of the kingdom, we're going to ask two questions. We're going to ask Who is this king, and what is his kingdom? So my encouragement to you this morning, as we once again dive back into this passage, is to have those questions lingering in your mind as we're reading through. So be thinking about that as we're going along. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father God, we thank you that you are good and gracious to us, your people. I pray that this morning as we contemplate who Jesus is as king 
and what his kingdom is. I pray that spirit, you will work in our minds, illuminating our thoughts, helping us focus afresh on our king. And I pray that as we do this spirit, you will work in our hearts and our affections, drawing us to you in love and care and desire. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in the year 336 BC, a momentous event happens that's going to shake the world stage. In a smallish kingdom that's not very important in the grand scheme of things, the kingdom of Macedon, uh, which bordered just kind of in the northern portion of Greece, it borders those great city-states that you might have heard of before, like Corinth and Athens and Sparta. Like I said, an event occurred in that year that would eventually change and shake the known world. So in this kingdom of Macedon, Philip II of Macedon is assassinated by his bodyguard. And what happens is his 20-year-old son assumes the throne, takes it up in the wake of his father's assassination. And this son has been prepared all his life to become king. He studied how his father ruled and reigned. He watched his father's conquests of the rest of the Grecan Peninsula. He saw his father subjugate people. Uh, He was also trained and tutored by the best minds in the world. His primary tutor was Aristotle, the great philosopher. And so this son was prepared to take over the throne. He was prepared to take the place of his father as king. And so in honor of his father and to try and gain his own glory and his own name, uh, he decided to carry on his father's invasion plans of the most powerful empire in the world. Uh, so this, this new king decided he was going to invade Persia, the Persian Empire. So with all of Greece behind him, this new king invades the Persian Empire, crosses the channel, goes over, and all of a sudden he just starts sweeping through with his armies, the known world. Obviously he's king over Macedon, he's also king over Greece, and then he goes through and he conquers Thrace, Asia Minor, Syria, the Levant, Egypt, Mesopotamia, the, the entirety of the Persian Empire, and begins his campaign into northern India. So from Greece all the way to, to northern India, this guy is conquering the known world. You might have heard of him before. He's Alexander III of Macedon, better, better known as Alexander the Great. And it seemed like he might consolidate the entire world under his rule and reign. Every single people group would soon be subjugated under him. It might be a new, a new reign of peace and prosperity in the world. But 12 years after assuming the throne, at the age of 32, he falls ill in his campaign in India, and he dies. And this great empire that he had conquered and and stitched together, all of a sudden falls apart. His generals squabble. They each take kind of their own little piece of the pie, build their own little kingdoms, and everything, like I said, falls apart. Everything reverts back into people against people, kingdom against kingdom, people squabbling for power. What could have been? Who knows? But the vision there that we have is that 
something great was, was created, and yet because the king and the kingdom were built through conquest, and that those were the character and the elements of the kingdom, everything falls apart after the king dies. The king wasn't immortal or eternal, and when he died, his vision, his direction for the entire empire was lost. All the people groups reverted back to being their own people. They weren't part of a unified empire. Everything just fell apart. This morning, we're going to see something different as we're tracking through this passage in Colossians. We see a different kind of king, one who doesn't come in power and might to conquer all the known peoples, but instead who unites all the known peoples, people of different languages and tribes and tongues and cultures, all these people that, provide, that, comp- that comprise his kingdom, we're going to see that he unites them as one people by his suffering and his death, not by conquering. And therefore, the character of his kingdom is wildly different than the character of the kingdoms of the world. So let's jump in. Let's read through our passage this morning in that light. So we're going to focus in this morning on verses 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. So last week, when we were going through this verse, going through our passage, we talked about this picture of King Jesus, that he is God, the second person of the Trinity. He created all things, and he's king over all of creation. As Paul says here in this passage, by him all things were created, and all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus rules and reigns over creation. And not only that, but he's intimately involved in how it operates. He continues to sustain all creation. As our passage says, in him, all things hold together. He's intimately concerned with everything that's going on. He knows what's happening, and he sustains and works in it. But it's not just sitting there and sustaining and ruling over creation from afar, We also know that he enters into his own creation. He knows it intimately because he's been here. He's experienced all these things. He became the God King in the flesh, dwelling as part of his creation. Once again, our passage points that out. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the one who's actually here in the flesh that we can see. Our passage also says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's God dwelling here in the flesh. But we've also talked about this fact that, that though 
this king has come, that Jesus has entered his creation, that there's also a rebellious, competing kingdom against his kingdom. Paul describes this as a domain of darkness. And this domain, like I said, is, is opposed to King Jesus. All of us are born into slavery, into this kingdom. As Paul says, though, something miraculous has happened. God, instead of leaving us in that state of rebellion under the domain of darkness, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, into Jesus' kingdom. So all this leads us to this realization. Jesus is king in two different senses here in this passage. He's king over all creation. He's sovereign Lord. Whatever he decides to do will happen. He's king over all things. But we also see that he's king in a different sense in this passage, a more narrow sense. He's a king over a kingdom that is, that is being opposed by the domain of darkness. And all of us were part of this domain at one time, but God did something crazy. He broke our chains of slavery. He delivered us. He transferred us into this new kingdom, this kingdom in a narrow sense of King Jesus. And that's, that's good news for us. It's good news that he didn't just deliver us and then say, hey, good luck. Hope everything goes well. We'll see what happens. Instead, he takes it a step further. Like I said, he puts us into Jesus' kingdom. He transfers us into a new kingdom, a new domain. And so the question this morning is, what is this kingdom? So like I said, Jesus is king in two different senses. And we actually see this coming out in the passage as we look a little bit closer. Our passage is actually split into two different parts this morning. And the first part, we see once again this picture of Jesus being king over all creation. He's God, the second person of the Trinity. He created all things in the beginning. He sustains and holds all things together. That's exactly what verses 15 through 17 point to. This great picture of King Jesus as Lord over creation. Listen to it again, thinking about that. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But he's also king over a new creation. This is the kingdom that we've been transferred into, or as Paul puts it, it's the body of Jesus his church. In verses 18 to 20, Paul switches. He's no longer talking about just creation at large. He's talking about this new kingdom, this new creation that Jesus inaugurates, that he brings into being, his church. So listen to, listen to this again in verses 18 through 20, the second half of our passage. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' kingdom, this new creation, is 
beautiful, but it's also a new kingdom in a much more narrow sense. And this new kingdom wasn't just started at the beginning of creation, but we see it's inaugurated by a specific event. Paul points to this. There's a turning point in history in which Jesus' new kingdom, his new rule and reign, comes forth. Hopefully this isn't a shock to you. It's Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus' new kingdom is established. His rule and his reign and his authority is seen in a new light because those of us who are in the domain of darkness have been redeemed, restored, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And this is why Paul declares that he is the beginning. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the one who we see as inaugurating this new kingdom. He's the first to rise from the dead in this new way. The beginning of this new creation, the beginning of this new people by rising from the dead. So I want to take a step back because there's some words in this passage which are a little strange to us. And if you read them wrong and think about them wrong, uh, some <laughs> you can be led to thinking wrong things about Jesus. Uh, and it's, it can be devastating to your faith. I'll just put it that way. Uh, so this is a moment of pastoral discretion where I want to help us think rightly about something. So in, in this passage, Paul uses the term firstborn, prototakos. And as you're reading through this passage, uh, if you don't think rightly about what Paul is trying to say utilizing this term, you will think wrongly about King Jesus, like I said before. And it's a, a wrong way to think about King Jesus that actually leads to heresy, uh, which is a little scary, we don't use that term very often, but it's very important when we're reading this passage in particular. So people in the past and people in the present use this passage to say that Jesus is divine, but he isn't God. He's divine, but he's a created being. And they point to this usage of the word firstborn here. Um, just to be frank and be, be straightforward, that's not what we believe as a church. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that he's not created, but he's eternal, coexistent, of one substance with the Father. These are all traditional phrases that are used to describe Jesus. Think about what Paul is saying here about Jesus when he uses this term, firstborn. After declaring him firstborn in verse 15, in verse 16, Paul goes on to say that all things were created through him. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if Jesus is created and yet created all things. Did he, like, create himself out of his creating of all things and then all things were created? Or how does that work? It doesn't make any sense. The idea that Jesus is a created being because of the use of the word firstborn here doesn't make any sense. Paul's usage of the term firstborn is not about time here, especially in the, first, in the first usage. We often say firstborn child. That's something uh, that we talk about all the time. We talk about our children, firstborn, secondborn, possibly thirdborn, or hats off to the elder Jacob family, sixthborn. 
We normally think in terms of time when we talk about firstborn, which makes sense. That's our, that's our experience. But here, when Paul is using the term firstborn, he's not using it, especially in the, in the first time he uses it in this passage, about um, birth order or created order. What Paul is trying to do, both here in the first usage and in the second usage, is he's trying to point out, as he says in verse 18, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. In utilizing the term firstborn, Paul's saying Jesus is superior, he's more important, he's sovereign, he reigns over all things, he has authority over all things, he has rank and distinction above all things. Over both creations, the first creation and the new creation. He's over all things. And this makes sense. In the ancient world, if you were one of the readers of this, you would have gotten that sense. The term firstborn in the ancient world was all about the ruler of the household, the one with power over life and death of everyone in the household. But it's also the one who has the distinction and honor and preeminence and deference is shown to them because they are the one who rules and reigns over the household. Paul is using language that would, be, would have been immediately familiar to the people reading this and hearing this, but it's not as familiar to us. So, in summary, firstborn, when, when Paul uses that term here, it's not about coming into existence, but it's about, it's about authority and prestige, and as he says, preeminence. So that's enough of our aside. If you have more questions about that, let's go grab coffee. I'd love to talk about it more. So back to what we were talking about. Jesus is king over this new creation. And he's inaugurated this new creation through rising from the dead. This, this new creation, his kingdom is marked from a movement from life or from death to life. And here, Paul says that Jesus is the beginning of those who will rise from the dead. But why is the new creation, Jesus' kingdom, the church defined by death, and then new life? Well, just like last week when we went back to Genesis, everything stems from Genesis. And so we're going to jump back into Genesis again to understand why does this new creation, this new kingdom, why is it inaugurated through death and then resurrection. So if you remember, everyone is part of this domain of darkness. And as we talked about last week, this domain of darkness, we see it starting. We see it coming on the scene in Genesis. All the way back in Genesis, in chapter 2, we see God declaring something to Adam and Eve. So this is Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay. When God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, he's not saying, pop that apple or orange or whatever that fruit is in your mouth, and boom, you're dead. It's not what God is saying there. It's not the exact day. God is giving this sense of immediacy and inevitability. You're going to die. In that day, in that way, you're going to die. 
And we know from the rest of the biblical witness that this is true. Every single person born under Adam and Eve, born into this domain of darkness, dies. But we also see in the biblical witness that it's not just a physical death. That's one part of it. But we also see that the death that spreads through the domain of darkness is a death that has many facets to it. There's four primary facets that we actually see coming out of this curse that God declares on Adam and Eve when they partake of the fruit, when they partake of death, when they enter into the domain of darkness. So this is the picture that we see. So I'm going to read these curses that God lays forth on Adam and Eve. So this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19 and verse 23. To the woman, God said, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This rebellion against God, this entering into the domain of darkness, like I said, brought death in four ways. And here we see that in these curses that are laid forth. In the first respect, Death is brought into our relationships with other humans. God's curse for the woman. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He will rule over you. There will be division and discord and death in your relationship. We also see here death in our relationship with creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles will rise up. Creation is rebelling. There's death entering into the relationship with creation. We also see death in relationship to our bodies. In pain you shall bring forth children, and then for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Pain and death in our physical selves. And then ultimately, death in our relationship with God. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, out of this place where God is dwelling with them, walking with them in the cool of the day, And there's death in their relationship with God. Entering into this domain of darkness, entering into rebellion against the creator king, death enters into all aspects of what should be life. But as Paul has pointed out, we have been saved from slavery to the domain of darkness. We've been saved from slavery to rebellion and death. And this is all because of the king, into whose kingdom we've been transferred. He's given us new life. All the way back in our verse, in verse 22, Paul makes this very clear. All this has happened in his body of flesh by his death. It is through Jesus assuming our death, taking on the death that, that occurs for everyone in the domain of darkness, that we are given new life and new creation.
This king has delivered the new creation from death in the domain of darkness by taking on our death and rising again. He's the beginning of all those who will rise again in the new creation. This is the picture that we have of this king and his kingdom. He has conquered death by death. What a picture of a loving king laying down his life for his people. So we're chewing on this passage together. One of the things that we've often said is that the kingdom takes on the attributes of the king. And in this instance, in the kingdom of Jesus, the new creation, the church, we see the character of Jesus flowing over into the people of his kingdom. All of us are in the, king, in the kingdom are called to look and to act like this king. And this is why Paul hones in on verse 18 to the church. He says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Let's think about this for a second. What is the head in relation to the, to the rest of the body? Well, guide, it guides, it steers, it thinks, it sees, it hears. It gives direction to the rest of the body so that the body acts as one person. Jesus gives direction so that the entire kingdom, the entirety of his people, the church, works and acts in his methods, in his ways, in his accord. One direction, one focus, one purpose. It's a kingdom that looks like it's king because the firstborn, the one with power and authority and prestige, is also the one at its head, leading and directing all the parts, directing the church according to his good character. And just like we talked about, what is the ultimate expression of Jesus' character? It's sacrificial, death-defeating love for his kingdom. Love that led him to die on behalf of his people. His death delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into his own kingdom. And so we have a picture of his character and the character of his kingdom and how he has set up and inaugurated his people. We, like our king, like our head, are to be a people of radical love, a people of radical sacrifice, a people who display the character of our king. Later on in his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul gives a fuller picture of what this looks like for God's people for what it means for us to be part of the body of Christ, part of his church. So this comes from Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, if his death has defeated your death, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has com complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. To be part of this kingdom, to be led by the head of the body, 
To be in this new creation is for Jesus' character to take root in our lives and shine forth. As Jesus showed his great love for us in dying to remove our death, by dying to transfer us into his kingdom, we're called to show that great and radical love to others. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. This is what the church is called to look like. So King Jesus is the head of the church. His kingdom is one of love and care and compassion. And we are called to show this same character to the world. So my encouragement to you this week is the same as my encouragement was to you last week. To make the words of this passage drip into your mind and your heart. To meditate on this picture of who King Jesus is and what his kingdom is. And my hope for you is that to make that happen and to make that real, that you'll take the steps to start memorizing this passage. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, so that when you ask the question, who is this king and what is his kingdom, this will be your answer. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son. We thank you that we have this picture of a good and gracious and kind king. And that it's a picture that both encourages us and challenges us in what it means to live in your kingdom. I pray that as we go forth from this place, we will be a people who take on the character of our king and who display his kingdom to the world. That as members of the new creation, we will show new life to all that are around us. We pray this because Jesus has died and brought us into his kingdom, and he has risen again, bringing us new life. It's in, his, in his name we pray. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.